Um, yes, good morning. Three weeks ago, in her wonderfully helpful introduction to John's Gospel, I hope you're here for it, Dr. Shively encouraged us to see as the central motif of the whole of this Gospel of John, Jesus, the light of the world. If you haven't heard that uh, podcast yet, then please get it. It's absolutely free on the church website. It really was excellent. In chapter 1, the well-known Christmas reading, which it shouldn't really be for reasons I'm about to hopefully explain, starts, in the beginning was the Word. We all know this, don't we? Have you heard this? Been to, ever been to a Christmas service? You'll have heard it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, Jesus is described in this passage five times as the light. And as Dr. Shively put it, that means the light who alone shows us things as they really are. Without this light, it is impossible for us to make sense of ourselves or the world we live in, let alone the mysteries of the awesome, loving God who made it and us. That was the light, verse 9, that was coming into the world as Jesus began his public ministry, which is where John starts the story. Yet the tragic fact, verses 10 and 11, is that the world that Jesus made and even his own particular people, sometimes known by the old-timers as a peculiar people, and looking around, you can see what he meant. Okay, looking at me, we can see what he meant. Uh, Even his own particular people didn't actually recognize him, didn't see who he was. But, verse 12, to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. There's a sharp contrast in the responses that people make to Jesus. And this is the main subject of our reading today from John 2, verses 1 to 22. Do turn that up on your telephones or Bibles or whatever other technology you use. If you want a title for this talk, perhaps it ought to be Responses to Jesus, Invitation or Indignation. As chapter 2 opens, John the Baptist, who's the first great prophet in Israel for 400 years, has pronounced unequivocally that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, and the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. It's a massive statement. And John the author wants us to see that this is the beginning of the light breaking out into a previously dark world where the best we could expect of life was that we'd go around bumping into each other and tripping over stuff. And as a result of that huge public testimony of John the Baptist, out of all the multitudes that he's baptised, just two men start to follow Jesus. Initially they follow because John pointed them towards him. But in verse 39, they're then drawn to him, as we were hearing last week, by his own simple invitation. Come and see Just three words, but just exactly when you think about it, the kind of invitation we could expect from someone who was the light of the world. Come and see. As he writes to us, John, the author, places himself in a position similar to that of John the Baptist. One who, from what God has revealed to him, encourages his listeners, his readers, to follow Jesus. And those three words of invitation by Jesus are still on offer to any who read this gospel to this very day. Come and see. Let's read John 2, verses 1 to 22. I'm hoping the words will... (laughs) There they are already. On the third day, 
There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each one holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and didn't know where it had come from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And they might have continued, and it ain't finished yet. It wasn't for another couple of decades. Destroy the, uh, destroy the temple. Yeah, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Well, it seems to me that this passage really poses just one big question. What is our response to Jesus? Because in the two major events of the chapter, the two different responses, indignation or invitation, result in two entirely different experiences of Jesus, as they do to this day. One of them leads to the light of true understanding, and the other one leaves us in the darkness of incomprehension. In chapter 1, as Morag showed us last week, the response of the first five disciples was simply to come and see. In fact, tellingly, a more literal translation of that little phrase makes it sound more like a promise. Come and you will see. Of these five disciples, only one had had a direct first-hand encounter with Christ. For the others, as for most of us, they had to trust somebody else's testimony about him, enough to go and seek him out. But when they were willing to come, they were able to see. To see enough to convince at least Andrew and Nathaniel that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. As Nathaniel put it, 
the Son of God and the King of Israel. So if you're one of those sitting here today wondering what all this Jesus malarkey is really about, John's challenge to you is not a complicated one. Now as then, we don't have to work out intellectually satisfying solutions to every ethical and theological and even personal problem that the gospel proposes for us, and it does. And then commit ourselves uncompromisingly on the strength of that understanding. No. Jesus' invitation is simply to come and see. His promise is simply, if you come with me, you will see. He doesn't ask us to take a leap in the dark, just a step towards the light. And so to the passage, which for today I'm just splitting simply into two stories. Response one at the wedding, invitation, verses one to 12. There's a wedding invitation mentioned in verse 2, and it may have been Jesus' reason, if you remember back in 1 verse 43, for the fact that he wanted to go into Galilee. It's right up up in the north of Israel, in fact. And if that's the case, then he turned up with five extra guests who cannot, check out the timeline, have been expected. But it didn't matter. They just got invited on the spot. It seems that any friend of Jesus was regarded as a friend of the family. I have to be a little careful here because we were talking about a different culture, one where uh, it was much more given to offering hospitality to strangers than we are used to, or most of us are used to. Nevertheless, five or more extra guests must have been a little inconvenient. In fact, it might have contributed, can only have contributed, to the shortage of wine. But there's a powerful message here for our time too. Because then as now, if we invite Jesus... We have to invite his friends too, his disciples. Like the wedding party, I think some of us often feel happy, I know I do, about inviting Jesus himself into my house than I do about inviting that whole posse, that bunch of misfits, oddballs, fashion idols, clever clogs, beauty queens, ugly mugs, and downright stinkers that he tends to surround himself with. Again, look around, you'll see what I mean. Or at least look at me, you'll see what I mean. One of the regulars at the, uh, the Strath Tav, where I occasionally go of a Sunday night, often wears a T-shirt that puts it rather well. Jesse will remember this. On the front, it says, Lord, save me, in massive yellow letters on a blue background. On the back, it says, from your people. It is a sometimes inconvenient truth for us that as the head and the body are one, so are Jesus and his church. Right, when the wine ran out, strikes me as rather an unfortunate phrase. It seems to suggest, of course the wine ran out, it was bound to. You know what that Andrew and Phil are like when they get going? Especially Phil, where is Phil? But in fact the Greek is is completely neutral. Uh, It just says lacking wine, or simply when the wine ran out. And when Jesus' mother, uh, Mary, told told Jesus that they have no wine, it's not clear what she intended him to do. Did she want him to pop down to the offie and get some more? Or what? Most likely, she simply expected, from her long knowledge of him, that by whatever means, he would provide a solution. He must have been just that kind of son. 
the go-to guy. Her trust in him is right and is rewarded, even though his initial reply is not encouraging. What business is that of mine or yours? Again, this is a sentence that's hard to translate um, into modern English. To our ears, that word woman sounds kind of abrasive, offensive, and sharp. But in its cultural context, it was a perfectly calm and respectful mode of address. In fact, it's the same one that Jesus uses from the cross to his mother again when he introduces John as her perspective. Woman, behold your son. There's nothing disrespectful or sharp about it. So it's not a case of, what's that got to do with me, woman? It's not that at all. But more important than that is the little phrase, my hour has not yet come. As the commentaries suggest, this is one of many indications in John's Gospel that Jesus can see the end from the beginning. One day is going to come the marriage feast of the Lamb, when Jesus as the bridegroom will be the person responsible for providing the wine. And it's going to be good stuff. But that hour has not yet come. It has for us, but it hasn't for him. As we read on in this gospel, we find repeated mentions of the time or hour not being yet. Check out verses seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 8, 7, verse 30, 8, verse 20, and contrast them with chapter 12, verse 23, 13:1, and 17:1, where Jesus recognizes that at last his hour has come. That's the kind of beginning of the Last Supper narrative and the build-up to his death. For now, and through the following chapters, John wants us to be asking ourselves the question, what hour? His hour hasn't come. What hour is that? What is it? He's building tension. It's like this sort of um, uh, Acme uh, elastic band in the Roadrunner and Coyote. You, you remember the thing? It goes back further and further and further. And then when it goes, it just disappears. He's pulling back the Acme elastic band. What hour? Now, as we approach the cross and resurrection from chapter 12 onwards, we see at last that that is the hour. That is the time when Jesus was really going to come into his own. That seems to be one of the major misconceptions that John is wanting to lay to rest as he writes this rather belated extra gospel when there were three other perfectly good accounts, at least three other perfectly good and some terrible um, accounts knocking around as well in circulation. And for that matter, it's still a common mistake that people make to this day. Few sensible people today doubt the historicity of Jesus' life and his death. But many see his death as just an ignominious end to a useful life. John wants us to be very clear that it was the very opposite. It was his hour of glory when the light of the world burst forth like a rising sun at last, coming over the horizon uh, in a a gradually brightening morning. As for the actual miracle itself, this is going to be familiar ground, I think, to most of you. You've probably heard a thousand sermons on this. So uh, let's just quickly note some of the salient points and move on. Verse 5 indicates that Mary trusted Jesus to produce a solution, one way or another. We don't know what she expected, but no one knew him better than she did. And she didn't hesitate to leave the problem in his hands. What's my default position in life? So I rather fancy that if I knew Jesus as well as she did, 
I might save myself a whole boatload of worry. Verse 6 speaks to the magnitude of the miracle. The quantity we're talking about is roughly 55 cases of wine, or 660 bottles. And if you've ever seen just 10 cases of wine stacked together, you'll know what a lot of space that takes up. That is a lot of wine. If this congregation was a wedding party, it would keep us going for several days. Verses 7 and 8 speak of a human involvement in the miracle. If this had been magic, Jesus might have just said, Alohomora, and waved a magic wand like Harry Potter style. Uh, I've probably got the wrong spell, but um, yeah, that's because that's this is being recorded, so I don't want to be giving away trade secrets. Yeah, but, but this is not magic. Miracles are not magic. And as so often, Jesus brings this one about through simple human beings. Not even grand, educated human beings, through servants. All they have to do is, as Mary puts it, exactly what he says. If we want to see miracles, then we don't have to be someone special. We don't have obtained some esoteric knowledge, some sort of Gnostic nonsense. We just have to do, as Jesus puts it a little later in this very gospel, what we see the Father doing. I can't do miracles. But I could fill up a water jar and take some to the master of a feast. That's all we do when we're praying for miracles or healing, as we're going to be doing in a few minutes. And if there's a problem with our receiving it, it can only be our slowness to hear the command of Jesus or our unwillingness to obey. Verses 9 and 10 speak of the quality of the miracle, best wine for last and all that but perhaps also about the way that Jesus works in our lives. I don't know about you, but I find it very hard to go from a good wine to a bad one and incredibly easy to trade up from a poor one to a really nice one. When there's only Lambrusco left at the party, it's time I left too. But if at midnight my host suddenly brings out the Chateau Lafitte or maybe the 30-year-old Macallan, then I think I'd, most of us would probably find a reason to stay on just a little bit longer till it's gone. Jesus isn't a host who puts up with you for a while and then starts dropping hints about how late it is and it's time you went away. He's a host who genuinely wants you to stick around, stay on, enjoy the best wine with him. And the other great thing that I see in this story, which is much more important than it sounds, is that our God, as revealed in Jesus his image and uh, fullness of his glory, as we read in Hebrews, cares about the little things of life. No one was going to die for lack of another glass of wine. It just would have been a bit embarrassing. When I first started hanging hanging out with born-agains, I used to get highly indignant about the casual way that they would pray for the little things, a parking space or for the bus to come. But I couldn't deny that time and again, just as soon as they prayed, the space would appear or the bus would turn up. It was annoying. All the wars and violence and problems and starvation all over the world, and you pray for a bus? What kind of faith is that? But it soon became clear to me that God cared about his children, even down to these little things. Nothing about your life is too trivial to bring to your heavenly father. And those of us who are fathers and have had little children will know 
what that means. As a young man hanging out with friends one afternoon, I was struck by another very simple everyday thing that happened. This was after I gave my life to the Lord. The father of the house was about to drive off somewhere, but he took the time to come back from the garage to the front window and to hand in a music cassette, the latest must-have I know, Spice Girls or whatever the equivalent was in those days. So something that his daughters really loved. Um, I wouldn't necessarily like it, but they, but they did. And they'd left it in the car, and he brought it back to them just because he knew they loved it and might want to hear it. It was a tiny, tiny thing. And I didn't know at the time why it made such a deep impression upon me. I now think it's because it told me something I didn't know about father's love. Something we all need to learn about our God. Another time, many years later, a prayer ministry training at uh, the Riverside Vineyard, the lesson was repeated for me. The, the youngster in our little group of three had a picture for the middle-aged woman in the group, but he was at first too embarrassed to give it. So I prodded him, as you vineyard people do. I encourage, you know, as you do, I said, go on, give it anyway, give it anyway. It's up to her to interpret it. So, oh, but it's really silly. No, go on, go on, give it. No, it's really silly, I don't like it. Like, Just give it. You know. And when he gave it, I began to wish that I hadn't pressed him quite so hard. It was one of those awkward pictures, you know, the jellyfish with a knife in its back type thing. But this, was, this one was a, this was a picture of a huge pink birthday cake covered in candles. I thought, oh, great. He was embarrassed, I was embarrassed. The woman he gave it to burst first into tears and then into laughter. It was, yeah, it was a strange thing. We discovered that her 22-year-old daughter was flying in from Canada the next day for her birthday. And the mum had been too busy to make a cake. She simply had too much to do. Anyway, the daughter surely wouldn't care at her age whether she got her ridiculous pink birthday cake. Well, get that's the kind of cake that that daughter had had every single year of her life since she was three years old. Big pink one with the right number of candles. So mum went home and made that cake straight away, and her daughter was so thrilled that she'd remembered. She said it made her whole birthday a tiny thing, a mum thing, but an important thing enough for God to bring it to her attention. Our Father in heaven cares about the little things, the dad things, the mum things. Verse 11 calls this the first sign that Jesus did. And scholars are quick to point out that John's gospel contains just seven signs, as well as seven I am statements by Jesus. In fact, as the end of the gospel makes clear, Jesus did far more than seven miracles. But John has picked out these particular ones so that they can show us who we're believing in when we believe in Jesus Christ. And that would make an interesting separate study in its own right. Just the seven signs and the seven I am's. Maybe we'll do it one day. All we can do in a series like this one is to try and pay each of these adequate attention as we come to them and try and learn what it is they show us about Jesus. As we see here, Jesus chose to manifest his glory, verse 11, in a little thing, a private event, a backwater of the nation, through servants, not bigwigs, just to prolong a party and save the host's blushes. And his disciples believed in him. After that first 12, they went down to Capernaum with his family for a bit. I wonder what they talked about 
in that holiday. I wonder if they took some of the leftover wine with them. If this verse has something to teach us, it's sure that Jesus was more than happy to move seamlessly between the extraordinary and the very ordinary. The extraordinary. And I think he wants us to be like that too. The second response, verses 13 to 22, is not invitation, not inviting Jesus and his chums. It's indignation. Before we look at these verses, can I just try and dispel a common misconception about the New Testament in general and John's Gospel in particular? To a 21st century British reader, John's repeated, not often complimentary references to the Jews can look somewhat anti-Semitic. And many clever people who really should know better still make that claim. So we could actually be forgiven for thinking there might be something in it. But when they set the Christian against the Jew in the context of the New Testament writers, they're making an elementary mistake. What they're doing is overlaying what's happened in subsequent history on the writings of people who had no knowledge of it, no experience of it at all, and simply could not have thought that way. All the New Testament writers, apart from Luke, were Jews, as of course was Jesus himself, who by God's plan and purpose died under a banner that said, King of the Jews. In fact, anyone with a decent Bible can see easily how completely the New Testament rests and relies on the authority of the old. You just have to look at one page's worth of cross-references. To, just, to suggest that someone like John could hate his own ethnic origins whilst entirely espousing the teachings and history that defined them is far-fetched. The twelve were all Jewish, and we know that most of them died for their faith in a Jewish rabbi. To suggest that they could somehow become anti-Semitic is downright weird. Yet somehow that accusation never seems to go away. And of course that's largely the fault of the great evils that the church has committed in between that time and now. But we can be quite clear that anti-Semitism is completely foreign to true New Testament faith. As we've been learning as a church, a true New Testament faith is distinctly Semitic. It requires an exodus mindset. This is the voice of the Lord. <laughs> what, what, what do you say? I missed it. Are we, are we making connections with God? <laughs> Who's having trouble with the connection? As we've been learning as a church, a true New Testament faith is distinctly Semitic. It requires an Exodus mindset. So the language of the Jews, identifying them often as baddies, does at sometimes appear to be problematic. But there might be an explanation you might be interested in, if an explanation is needed, in this scholarly suggestion that the Greek word for Jew, Judeoi, the Jews, Judeoi, can equally well be translated Judeans. You can hear it in the sound, Judeoi. And that would make the Judeoi in this context a subgroup of the wider people, people and culture uh, of Israel. Possibly a bunch of aggressively Jerusalemite Jews, as opposed to the Galileans, whom we also know formed a distinct group in their own right. 
and a group that definitely included John. So that might be the kind of distinction he's making between uh, the Galileans and the Judeoi. So if, as seems likely, this interpretation has anything in it, it would be rather like the so-called hawks and doves, you might remember, from late 20th century Israeli politics. Completely different groups believing completely different things and working out the same faith in totally different ways. That's a possibility. And as we all know, it's a vital theological and philosophical principle that this is not that. Perhaps I just expressed my own indignation against intelligent people who ignorantly attack the gospel of Jesus. But what we have in verses 13 to 22 is an example of the indignation of intelligent people who would end up ignorantly attacking Jesus. And it seems the reason they did so was precisely because their attitude, perhaps their default position, was not one of invitation, but of indignation. If you know the end of the story, you'll remember how the false accusers at Jesus' trial dragged up a distorted memory of these very sayings to prove their trumped-up charge of blasphemy. Don't you think trumped-up has a wonderful ring to it in contemporary political terms? This passage is a... I'll leave that with you. Uh, This passage is a stern lesson to those who approach the word of God with arrogance rather than submission. It is not our place to sit in judgment on the scriptures. It's our place to sit under the judgment of the scriptures. But it's not immediately clear quite what's going on here. In the first place, the other gospels place the cleansing of the temple right at the end of Jesus' ministry. So who's right? Them or John? Well, there's two possible explanations apart from one or other having made a mistake. One is that John is taking the later event out of chronological order for the sake of making a point. And the other, which is the one I favour, is that Jesus actually cleansed the temple more than once. John, with his emphasis on re-establishing the Messiahship of Jesus, reminds his readers that right at the start of his earthly ministry, Jesus performed this messianic act. Because cleansing the temple with a whip was a definite messianic claim in terms of Jewish tradition. One that these Judeans clearly recognize when they ask him for a sign in verse 18. What they're saying, in effect, is, you say you're the Messiah, prove it. It's interesting that they're not challenging his actions themselves, just his right to do them. There's quite a lot of evidence that most people at the time regarded the prices charged for sacrificial animals in the temple and the exchange rates offered to change Roman currency into uh, temple currency was absolutely exorbitant, scandalous. So to the Judeans, this was a case of, yeah, somebody should do this, but not you. Not, you, not, not a Galilean. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I wonder what would have happened if rather than challenge him, a group of these guys had humbly invited him and his disciples to supper to explain what was going on. Well, we'll never know, because they didn't. Instead, like many today, even like myself on occasion, they questioned Jesus' actions on the basis of their own limited knowledge and understanding of Scripture. So what they got was an apparently nonsensical reply. Destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. Once more, those on the outside don't understand. 
But those who are following Jesus, verses 7 and 20, 17 and 22, have got the inside track. They've got that insider trading. They can see exactly what Jesus is saying and doing. It's no good sitting on the outside bombarding Jesus with questions because our own understanding will make a nonsense of the replies he gives. The only way to understand Jesus is to come and see. Once again, verses 21 and 22 show us the end from the beginning, that dying on the cross for our sins was always what Jesus came to do. When he rose from the dead, they understood that Jesus' three-day challenge related to his body, not the temple. And from this point on, his body was the true temple, was the true place where God could be worshipped, because that's the place where God could be seen. But they also understood, as verse 22 says, the scripture. To my mind, that can only refer to the scripture which had sprung to mind in verse 17, when Jesus spoke, you know, my father's seal of my father's house will eat me up, that one. And that can only be Psalm 69, verse 9. If you want to dig deeper into understanding this passage, then let that be your homework for this week, to read Psalm 69 in the light of what you know of Christ. Then come and tell us what you found out at Pub Church on Friday, if you're available. It's a good time. For us today, the main thing is, are we going to respond to Jesus with invitation or with indignation? Because he will do and say and sometimes even ask us to do and say things that we find outrageous. He will come and cleanse our temple and we'll have to decide how we're going to respond. If you want your temple cleansed, then please come forward for prayer in a moment with the others who come for healing and for their other needs to be met. But if you're not yet at that point, if you're wise, you'll still respond with invitation rather than indignation. You'll accept the Lord's own invitation to come and see. Come, and you will see. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for the wisdom and power you displayed in your son Jesus. Thank you for him as the light of the world. As we sang before, your word is a lamp to our feet. But the fullness of your word in in Jesus, in bodily form, lights up the whole world. We thank you for the, the sunrise of his death and resurrection. Shedding light on all the dark corners of our lives. All the dark corners of our understanding of our world and of our God. And we invite you now, light of the world, to shine in our darkness. In a moment, there's um, a couple of words from the Lord which I'd like to hear, but just before we do that, let's, um, 
let's gather those of us who want prayer for anything at all um, at the front here. And we'll lay hands on you and, and pray for you, and the Spirit will come. We're just filling some water jars up and taking some to the master of the feast. That's all we do. I've, I've had a, um, uh, a powerful pain in my left calf, the outside of the left calf, from knee to ankle um, this morning. If that's a word of knowledge, that's the form it sometimes comes in uh, for speakers on these occasions. If you've got the pain in that place, I believe the Lord will definitely heal it today. Um, but otherwise, if you're standing in need of uh, a touch from the Lord, either for empowerment in your life, I think he's going to give some gifts of the Spirit out today, or um, for something to get sorted out, something in your, uh, in your life, something in your body, something in your soul, then please just come. And even if you, don't worry if you've got kids in Young Vineyard, you've got six minutes before you have to go and get them. So uh, just come as soon as you're ready. We're going to sing now. We'll come and I'll ask Eddie to bring a word in a second.